following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. We'll be uh, turning there. And as we begin today, I wanted to start off with a poll. All right? Coke or Pepsi? How many Pepsi? How many here for Pepsi? Okay. Now for the truly godly ones. Those of you that like Coke? Okay, yeah, yeah. See, there's no question about which is better, right? I'm going to cause a fight right at the beginning. Right at the way that beautiful song of my brotherly love, too. Well, in 2010, the, the statistics were taken. The world consumed 1.6 billion cases of regular Coke. Um, compared to only 890 million cases of Pepsi. Actually, Diet Coke even sold more than regular Pepsi at 927 million cases. So case is closed on that one. But so does big business. Do you know Coca-Cola Company last year, the revenue was $48 billion? For some carbonated sweet water, $48 billion. Amazing. And the, so you know what? Coca-Cola Company has done, you know, they have the, the original formula, right? There's this whole big thing about that. It was originally invented in 1886. It's been modified over the years because the original formula did have uh, actual Coke inside the formula. They did change that, fortunately. But in fact, in 2011, Coca-Cola Company built this huge vault in Atlanta to house this little piece of paper that's got the original recipe written on it. Very few people, I'm not making this up, very few people have access to it. If you were to go there, there's, a, there's security lights, they actually have guards posted out front, probably armed, just to protect that piece of paper, that formula, that recipe, which is critical to uh, the revenue for Coca-Cola Company. And recipes are important, not only for uh, if you make a good one, because you can make a lot of money, but also... Because if you don't have the right ingredients in a recipe that you are attempting to, uh, to, to take carry out, to perform, if you don't have the right proportions, uh, what you end up with may not taste very good. You know, my wife and my daughters, they are very good at recipes. But me, you know, the only kind of recipe that I'm any good at are the ones that say, you know, open package, place in microwave for two minutes, uh, let cool and eat. It's about the only recipe I can follow very well. And recipes came to my mind this morning for our topic today because Romans 12, 9 through 16 gives us a recipe. It, it gives us several ingredients of a healthy church, of a church that is one that extends the love of Jesus Christ to one another. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at Romans 12 and, and see what does characterize genuine love among believers. And so with that, if you could please stand as I read, I'll be beginning in Romans 12, 1, actually leaving off from where Tim finished uh, this morning. He read the end of chapter 11. Romans chapter 12. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, 
as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his, in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love is without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and be of the same mind toward one another not being haughty in mind, but associating with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Let's pray. Lord, many rich truths here that you have given, and I would ask by your Spirit that He would give us understanding, and Lord, that we would apply, Lord, these words, that you would help us, God, to know, to know how to do that. Lord, help us with those times that we might struggle in living these truths out. We thank you for the salvation that you have given us. And thank you, Lord, that you have provided a sacrifice by which we can be saved. Lord, may all that we do now be in honor of you. And just pray, Lord, you give us attentive ears and a willing heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, again, here in verses 9 to 16, we have a a list of ingredients. And these ingredients describe genuine love. But looking at verses 9 to 16, particularly most translations, it it seems more like that's a general list of commands that he's giving here. Not particularly centered on one theme, but a variety of thoughts. In fact, Calvin said one should not press too hard to find a link between all these phrases. Now, granted, Calvin is, uh, was much smarter than I am, but I don't think Paul was rattling off a bus- bunch of disconnected statements here, commands that don't relate to one another. In fact, when Paul lists things, he normally lists things that do connect, that are linked together, that do uh, center around a common theme, and I believe that's what he's doing here in Romans 12. In fact, we can see the context here. Romans 12, it's a key transition. Again, uh, Tim read earlier from the end of chapter 11, the great doxology in response to all that Paul had been declaring about God's salvation, about what the implications of his salvation, about the, the wonderful truths, deep truths in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he can't help himself at the end of chapter 11 just to blurt out praise to God and, and to declare praise for his glory. And then here in chapter 12, we get that therefore, where Paul's transitioning from the truths that he has declared about the gospel of Jesus Christ to our response. How should we respond to that gospel and the power of the gospel? So in chapters 12 to 16, we get a series of topics and subjects that Paul brings up that describe the, the right response, the expected response, the, uh, the worthy response to the gospel. Very similar structure as Ephesians, which we spent some time in not long ago. He begins in verse 1 with the call to live a transformed life, a life that is described as a sacrifice to God, to be used however he sees fit. 
And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul begins to describe what a sacrificial life and service to Christ looks like. Notice where he begins, verses 3 through 8. He talks not about first personal holiness. So he doesn't focus on quiet times, on being a testimony, or even on how we should be in our families. What is the subject? What is the topic in which Paul first addresses as he looks to a proper response to the gospel? What do you see there? Verse 4, verse 5? What's he talking about? Verse 4, he says, Just as we have many members in one body, right? In verse 5, we who are many are one body in Christ. He first talks about, in response to the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, the church. He first addresses attention towards the church, and specifically our identity within the church. And as important as our personal walk is, as important as our responsibilities within the home, as our responsibilities and reputation outside the home, that's not where Paul begins. Paul begins right here. He begins with us. He begins with the most important, valued organism on the face of the planet, the only one for which Christ shed his blood, the church. Then in verses 6 through 8, Paul describes how we have these various gifts that have been given for the edification of the church and those in the church. And then we get to verse 9. Verse 9 is kind of this, particularly in the Greek, this abrupt uh, interjection that Paul makes. Uh, Love is unhypocritical or love is without hypocrisy. Now, some of your translations may indicate this as a command. Let love be without hypocrisy. But, but the normal way we would translate these words from the Greek would be, a st- it's a statement. It's not a command. He's saying love is without hypocrisy, meaning love is sincere. Love is genuine. Love is unhypocritical. Love is authentic, without guile. That word hypocrite is, uh, uh, had the idea in New Testament times of an actor. So Paul's saying, Genuine Christian love is not an act. It's not a performance. And then following verse 9, most Bibles then have this list of several commands, but these phrases are, are not commands. They're not given in an imperative form in the Greek. They're actually participles, and participles by nature modify a main idea. And here the main idea is that first statement in verse 9, love is genuine. And then Paul begins to describe after that what a genuine love looks like. What are the characteristics of a love that is sincere? We see all through this passage various aspects and traits and attributes of a genuine love. And in this list, there's this uh, focus on those characteristics. In fact, let me, let me um, read you a, a, what I think better reflects the original here. And it'll just give you an idea of how interconnected these phrases are. Love is genuine. Abhorring evil, clinging to good, with respect to brotherly love, devoted, with respect to honoring one another, preferring, with respect to zeal, not lazy, with respect to the spirit, fervent, with respect to the Lord, serving, with respect to hope, rejoicing, and so on. That may not flow as well in the English, but it gives you the idea. That would be a more literal translation of what's being depicted here. That all of these phrases are linked together to describe what a sincere love looks like. And also, too, it's interesting, there's no connecting words between these phrases. There's no and, there's no or, there's no but, there's no for. Did you catch that little rhyme? Um, Anyway, there's nothing that connects these phrases. They're all clumped together as a description. Sincere love here is specifically towards whom? Who's the focus in these verses, anyway? 
one another, right? Again, we're in the context of the church. And notice in verse 10, twice he says, and also in verse 16, one another. He mentions saints as well, I believe, in verse 16. The the focus here is genuine love to be expressed within the body of Christ, to our brothers and sisters within the body, within the church. We again know that that's the case because whenever uh, one another, whenever you see that in the epistles, it is never used in the 50 plus occurrences to refer to both believers and non-believers at the same time. When it's addressed to believers in the epistles, it's always talking about one another, fellow believers. What all this means is that verses 9 to 16 are given in the context of life in the church, that this love is specific towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't transition to uh, all people or generally how we are to treat everyone until we get to verse 16, where we see um, the phrase all men, and again in verse 18, excuse me, verse 17 and 18. So today, on, on this Sunday, as we're all gathered together as one body, when one service, I want us to consider what is a love without hypocrisy? What does a sincere love among us look like? What should it look like? So I see from Paul's list here um, eight general characteristics of a genuine love among believers. Yeah, there are many more phrases than eight, but just in looking at them and how they're connected together, I see eight general characteristics. And saints, this list is powerful. For if we would truly, as, as we walk through this, if we would truly embrace, understand, and seek to apply and, and know what is the power of the gospel and what it is capable of doing within the human heart, I appreciated Nick's testimony earlier and how he described it, that he recognized when God had grabbed him because he was different. He was transformed. He's not arrived yet. Though you're, you're close, though. He's not arrived yet, but he sees a difference. He sees a change. The gospel is powerful. And Paul here describes this is what it will do in relationship among people, among one another. And so he gives us this list to show us it will change us. We will look more like Jesus. And if we would embrace the truths that Paul is describing here about genuine love, we will make the gospel beautiful. I love that song we ended with. That the, the world is impacted when they see a genuine, sincere love. And if we would but embrace these truths, we could express that testimony as Jesus desired us to do. They will know you are my Disciples by your love for one another, right? We'd get a taste of heaven right now if we could be living out what Paul communicates here. And, you know, do you want that? Do you really want it? Because I do. So much so, I'm going to pray again right now and just ask God to bless the remainder of our time together in His Word, okay? Lord, I do earnestly just ask that you would please um, just. Open our eyes to these truths. I know many of them, God, we've, we've heard before and many of them that, uh, Lord, we understand. And yet, many of them are so hard to live out. I, I just ask, God, that you would use our time and your word this morning, that your spirit would move within us to be a people that uh, lives out these truths, that, that Calvary Bible Church is a picture of Romans 12. And that, God, you would use our testimony to lift up your son in a lost world. We pray in His name. Amen. Again, well, the first characteristic of genuine love that Paul expresses here is that it is holy. Verse 9 says, Love is sincere, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. 
It's uh, interesting, the first quality that Paul points out about love is to describe what it hates. And that word he uses for hate here is a strong word. It's the idea of to hate exceedingly, to loathe, to detest, to abhor, as most translations put it. And, And what is it that sincere love abhors? Evil. Evil, right? And again, remember the context here. We're, we're speaking within the church. We're talking about a sincere love for the saints. And that sincere love will hate to see sin in the body of Christ. Genuine love cannot stomach evil among Christ's sheep or against Christ's sheep. Because real love doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Rather, there's a deep sensitivity to sin. Because genuine love knows that the damage that sin does to God's people, the damage that it does to the reputation of Jesus Christ, the damage that it does to his church and his gospel. If we have a sincere love, we will take action against sin. If we see it in our own lives, we will deal with it for the sake of others. If we see it being committed against a brother or sister, we will come to their aid. And if we see it in other believers, we won't ignore it, but we will go to them and we will graciously point it out. Graciously, right? Point it out. For you see, it's a hypocritical love that sees sin and does nothing. That allows sin to be ongoing in a fellow believer or in themselves or within the body. Again, sincere love has a hatred for sin. Not one that is condemning. Not one that is self-righteous. But one that recognizes and will do whatever is necessary to see that sin not in the body of Christ. Paul adds this idea, it does, not only abhors evil, but it clings to what is good. That word cling is, means uh, to be stuck to, to be glued to, uh, firmly. I, I think of that, you guys remember that commercial, that crazy glue commercial where the guy uh, puts some crazy glue on his hard hat and then he hangs from this beam in the middle of the air? Not exactly how I would test it out, but that's the picture that came to my mind. That guy was stuck there, at least he was hoping he would. It was a long way down. But the picture here of genuine love is that which uh, sees good and clings to it. It affirms what is good. It affirms the good seen in others. It comes alongside brothers and sisters in Christ to help them in doing good. Not because we think we're better than one another. I I really understand what it means to do good, so I'm going to help you little people to do good as well. That's not the attitude at all. But it comes alongside each other to affirm, encourage, and help in doing good. Again, this concept here doesn't mean that we're the holiness police and that we check up on everybody's little action to make sure it conforms to my standards but it's it's to seek to help one another be like jesus to deal with any sin in life and to build up those things which would affirm and show him uh, be an example of of christ in us so any any sin anything that hinders that in our lives anything that keeps us from being like jesus We'll take action to deal with any good that we see we, that we will we will take action to help affirm and grow and cultivate because again sincere love seeks holiness in Christ's body not only is sincere love holy it is also affectionate notice in verse 10 the phrase literally reads with regards to brotherly love towards one another familial devotion Paul uses the term brotherly love any guesses as to what Greek word that is? The city named after it, right? Philadelphia. Includes the word phileo, one of the Greek words used for love with specific emphasis on friendship, on affection, on camaraderie, companionship. 
And then in this phrase, Paul adds another word for love, philostergoi, which is combines again the word phileo, but also another Greek word you may not be familiar with regarding love, storgos. It's this word that it's the natural affection within a family. It's that normal inclination that you might have or love or, or, or uh, affection, devotion for a child, for a parent, for a sibling, for another family member. It's the, the love that unites a family. It's that special connection that a family has. Yeah, the kids may be fighting in the back seat, but you know what? If little brother gets picked on at school, older brother's going to come and help out, right? That's the, the kind of love and connection. And that's the word that Paul uses here. And he uses these two words, Philadelphia and Philostorgos, to emphasize a point that genuine love among believers will have a familial affection. That there'll be an emotional connection. And I'm not going to move on from this verse yet because I think this verse gets swept under the rug too often, especially in conservative Bible churches. Because this verse expresses a principle that makes many of us a little bit uncomfortable. Because it describes here what a transformed life in Christ will produce. It will produce a true affection among believers. Not just a willingness to serve. Not just a commitment to pray for. Not just a providing of needs. But an emotional bond. 1 Peter 1.22 says... Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love. That word sincere is the same word as we have in Romans 12. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He's not just talking of deeds of kindness or acts of service. Those are a given. But our love for one another is also to be full of familial affection. And notice one another here means everyone. Every believer in this world and in this room. Yet we hear, I will love him, but I don't have to like him. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Or what's the phrase sometimes? I will love him in the Lord. You know what that one means, right? I can't stand that guy, but I have a spiritual obligation to serve him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 11. This is Paul's heart as he expressed it to the Corinthians. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our, our heart is opened wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, open wide to us. You know what he's crying out for there among the corinthians he said we've given our hearts to you we've poured our hearts out to you we love you don't be inhibited in expressing that love toward us open wide your hearts your affections is the context there don't be inhibited or restrained in returning the affection we have given to you don't just be cordial to us don't just take care of our physical needs brothers and sisters the kind of love that transforms the kind of love that comes with a conversion by the Holy Spirit in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a change not just in our actions, but in our affections. Do you hear what Nick said earlier? He talked about how his affection for Christ changed. He knew there was a difference. He loved Jesus. And with that transformation also comes a love for one another that's not normal. <laughs> not natural 
Yes, God expects us to feel an affection for one another. Fervently love one another from the heart, Peter said. That means, some of you this may blow your mind. That means that God is commanding a feeling. He's commanding us, he's commanding you to express an emotion. There are several examples of this in Scripture. We know Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, expect joy, uh, express joy. James 4, 9, in regards to sin, James says, be miserable, mourn, weep. Those are emotions. 1 Peter 2, 1, long for, strongly desire, yearn for the pure milk of the word. A few verses later, here in Romans 12, Paul says, weep for those who weep. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Greatest commandment in all the Bible is what? What did Jesus say? Love God. How? In, in our actions? Dutifully? Is that all God's interested in? What does he say? Love God with? All. All. Don't forget that one. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's a consuming love. Every aspect, every part of this, not only in our hands, but also our hearts, not only in our actions, but also our attitudes, not only in our deeds, but also our desires. All of it is to be centered around love for Christ. But, but what if the feeling isn't there? How do I force an emotion? I mean, that's just not... Who I am. I don't have an emotional personality. And in my case, I'm a dude. I mean, that doesn't come natural. But if you notice, God doesn't give qualifications here. It's not a qualified suggestion. Here in Romans 12, it's an expected trait. In 1 Peter 1, it's a command. Fervently love one another from the heart. John Piper said this. The fact that our hearts are so distorted by sin that we don't feel what we ought to feel does not mean that God cannot command what is right and good and fitting for us to feel. We are responsible to feel what God commands us to feel. This is profound. This is a massive paradigm shift. And and you know, beloved, God never commands something that he does not enable his people to do. So if you're sitting there thinking, emotion, (laughs) not for me, bud, I'll serve, but an affection, God expects it. Augustine's prayer has made a big impact on me where he, one statement, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, God, command me to do your will and give me the will to do your command. That's that's the gospel right there. (laughs) Repent and believe. I will open your eyes and grant you that repentance and faith. You know, I just think about it. You know, isn't isn't the gospel powerful enough to change us? Isn't the gospel powerful enough to make us into the image of Christ? And by the way, if you remember, when Jesus walked the earth, he was a man full of emotion. Full of emotion. Not led by it, not driven by it, but experiencing it. Becoming like Christ doesn't just mean in deed, but also in desire. Paul adds in verse 10 that a sincere love prefers one another in honor. The the idea behind that verb prefer is 
is this uh, to, to go before someone, to show the way, to lead. It's this idea of outdo one another and showing each other honor. It's almost set up like a competition. But the idea is take the initiative. Don't wait for opportunities, but take the initiative to treat one another with dignity and with respect. Genuine love doesn't harshly criticize. It doesn't despise. It doesn't disregard. It it doesn't ignore somebody or rudely walk by them when they say hello in the church foyer. No matter what that person has done to you. It doesn't speak ill of another. It doesn't gossip. And I got to stop at this one for a minute. We got to work at this one, guys. It grieves me to hear of the gossip that goes on. You know, it's fine to speak of somebody if they aren't around, if you're speaking well of them. But to discuss another's faults or deeds without them there, whether it's true or not, is wrong. It's it's wrong. It's wrong. Jesus deserves better than that. Be careful. Be careful. You know, that's one of the gossips, one of those sins. Yeah, we know it's wrong, but all of us do it. I do it. And sometimes I'm not even thinking about it. So we need to be careful. If you have a concern with somebody, if there is an issue you see in another person's life, you, you go to that person, right? You go talk to them. If you find yourself in a conversation and someone else's name comes up, change the conversation. Love abhors evil. And gossip is evil. And the same goes if, you know, if you have a concern about a leader here or maybe some decisions that have been made, don't stir up dissension by going to other people and talking about it. Go to the leader and ask about it. They're not going to attack you. They're not going to bite your head off. There may be some insight you have that they didn't realize. The elders are fallible men. The leaders here are fallible. But don't gossip. Don't gossip. This, that will tear our church apart. It will tear us apart. Let's help each other in this. Because again, I know sometimes we may say things and we don't realize it. Just help it. Hey, 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 that person's not here. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> now again, it's fine. If you have a concern of someone, you don't know how to go talk to them, it's okay. If you want to come to a, a leader, receive some counsel, you know, leave their name out of it though, unless it's absolutely necessary. Just say, I, I need to go to a certain person and share something that, that I see in their life. And how can I go about doing that? But please don't, don't talk about one another when they're not around. Our love may be characterized by giving preference to one another in honor. And I think this is a big way we can do that. Big way we can do that. Thirdly, genuine love is fervent. As seen collectively by the three phrases in verse 11, Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence. Now, the idea there is to not be lazy in regards to expressing a zeal or a willingness. In this context, it's a zeal to serve. It's a a zeal to help one another in love. Paul then adds this phrase being fervent in spirit. I don't think Paul's speaking here of the Holy Spirit uh, in this specific context, because again, we're talking about within the church and we're talking about how love is being expressed by ourselves, amongst ourselves, our actions toward one another. And this word fervent is kind of an interesting word. It's the idea of boil. It's used of boiling water or sometimes of making a solid substance fiery hot. And when used of a person, it's describing that person is stirred up emotionally. They're enthusiastic. They're on fire. That's how Apollos was described in Acts 18. He was a guy that 
this guy was amazing. I mean, he'd go into the, to the synagogues and he'd declare the truth of the Messiah. And he, it says when Paul came upon him, he saw, man, this guy is speaking boldly for Christ. And he saw this guy powerfully refuting those around him. And then he's described there as one fervent in spirit. Apollos was on fire. And a sincere love for one another is one that is on fire, one that is motivated, one that is excited, one that is enthusiastic. Once again, we're confronted with this idea of emotion. (laughs) Emotion. That should be present in our love for one another. It's a boiling over of zeal and service. A service as unto Christ, as we see in the last phrase in verse 11. It's not this, you know, well, I, I have to do this act of service, so I guess I'll just get it over with. Or this, yeah, I know their need, but I just, I just don't have time. Or, you know, I just don't know those folks very well. I'd be very uncomfortable helping them out. Or, you know, if I start a conversation with this person, they're just going to be telling me about their problems. Or, you know, I, I just don't have a lot in common with that specific person. You know, those are things that don't reflect much enthusiasm to serve, do they? They don't reflect much incitement to express genuine love, do they? I like what Paul said in Colossians 1.28 as he expressed his fervent spirit and service where he said, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says this, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. That's a, a fervency, a spiritual fervor, an energy, an enthusiasm, a motivation for the sake of others. That's what a sincere love is. It's fervent. Fourth characteristic is seen in verse 12. A sincere love for God's people with respect to hope rejoices. With respect to tribulation perseveres. With respect to prayer is faithful. All these phrases center around this idea that a sincere love endures. That it's persevering. That it is faithful, that it persists. Paul mentions here a rejoicing heart that doesn't fail. He says that when trials come, that love perseveres, remains, it it holds out, it bears up under. The basic meaning here of the word tribulation is just the idea of being under distress. Regards to relationships among believers, do you ever think it's possible that perhaps a distress or, or trials or difficulties might take place? Is it possible, just hypothetically, is it possible that sometimes distress will come about in your life because of what another brother or sister did? Is it possible? Yeah, we all know the answer. When you bring any sinners together, it's possible, likely, it's going to happen. Though they may be saved, though we are saved, we still sin. Again, Nick, you're not the star of the show this morning, but I, I love what you said about just <laughs> autographs afterwards up front. But I like what he said. You know, I, I am not who I want to be, but I'm not who I was. Right? And what he means by that, we all understand that we're not where we want to be. We're not perfect until glory. And that means that we are going to sin. And that means that we are going to sin against one another. Sometimes, maybe even intentionally, we are going to cause one another distress and tribulation. And when that happens, what does a love without hypocrisy do in response? Does that love give up when things get hard? 
Does that love move on because of a disagreement? Does that love bail out because things didn't go the way you wanted? No, genuine love has hope. Genuine love endures. It's committed to persistent prayer. And you know, I'm, I'm at times dumbfounded how easily people will, will pull away or even leave a church when something hard comes along. When someone else does something hurtful to them. When this or that ministry doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Or when the music isn't how they like it. Or when their needs aren't being met. Or when they feel people aren't reaching out to them. Or, or sometimes they just want to try something new. Something different. And I, I've got to be honest here. I, I, I don't get that. I just don't get it. If, if our love is one of familial affection... If we go back to verse 10 and then verse 11, if our love is this fervent devotion to our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are to see one another as a family, and since we are family, at least according to God, shouldn't there be a loyalty? Shouldn't there be a commitment to your family? Shouldn't there be an enduring, a persevering? Shouldn't there be a love which bears all things, a love that believes all things? Sounds like another passage we know. I mean, is this your family or not? Is this your family or not? When things get hard in your family, you don't just check out. If your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings upset you, you just don't leave, right? Or at least you shouldn't. (laughs) You don't say, well, that's it. I'm not part of this family anymore. And yet, how readily do people do that in the church, their family? And again, remember... In the church, it is a family that is more tightly bound together than human families because the blood of Christ ties us together stronger than any blood of kinship. And yet there are those who treat the church as if it was some kind of service organization. You know, we're so conditioned in this culture to see those things outside of our homes as a service, whether it's a restaurant whether it's a, a business, a social club, a sports team, a grocery store, school, bank. You know, if I don't like the service, if I don't like the results, then I go somewhere else. But that's not the church. That's not the church. The church is not here to provide a service that you can take or leave. It's not like, you know, if you've been going to McDonald's and you're, you're tired of it or you get sick from it one day and you say, you know what, we're going in and out. Yeah. Now, that's totally fine if we're talking about hamburgers. But this is not in and out. You get me? The church is not a service club, a service organization. As we learned in Ephesians, the church is a body that's been made to function and together. It's described there as a building that's being fitted together as a temple in the Lord. It's described as the bride of Christ. And the family of God and Christ's bride exists to glorify Jesus by serving him, not by serving our own needs. Right? If it's his bride, his bride's being adorned for him. For him. If your love is sincere, you will be loyal to one another. You will stay strong in your service to one another and in your care for one another. That's how it works in families. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that uh, it's a sin to ever leave a church. I mean, cults do that kind of thing. If you leave here, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I do want to challenge you to consider, how do you view the local church? How do you view what your loyalty to the church should be? For again, a, a genuine love, beloved, endures. Fifth characteristic is found in verse 13 in the two phrases, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. These show a genuine love shares. Needs here refers to material needs. Contributing comes from that word we get koinonia from. It's the idea of sharing, of fellowship. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And, and you know, really caring for each other's needs, isn't that kind of Christianity 101? That's kind of the basic, fundamental thing believers are to do. Acts 2.45 gives us a wonderful example of the early church when they got saved and they were selling their possessions and their property. And it says they're sharing with any who had need. That was a really a first response after baptism to the gospel was to share the stuff they had with one another. So if you see a need, don't ignore it. And don't pass it off to somebody else. Don't just say, I'll pray about it. You'd be the first to do something about it if you see it. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warm and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for a body, what use is that? Now, I know, again, not all of us may have the financial resources to care for certain needs here in the body, but you can at least help, and you can at least try to enlist others to help, can't you? Don't just pass everything off to the benevolent fund. You know, it is there to provide for needs. And Carol Clark, by the way, is back there, and she will assist you if you have any, right, Carol? (laughs) I mean, it is there for needs, but if you see one, do what you can first to help. Paul describes a specific need in Romans 12, 13, when he says practicing hospitality. That word there, another word which contains the word phileo in it, means lover of strangers. And the idea was, especially in New Testament times, you had many believers who were uh, going around as missionaries, as prophets, or those who had been persecuted and were driven out of their homes, and they needed a place to stay. And a lot of times you didn't even know these people, and they'd show up, a fellow believer, and they'd say, I need a place to sleep. i got my kids with me too. This idea of hospitality was you opened up your home to them. Now today... We can demonstrate this at least by consistently having people over to our home or our apartment. Even if it's small, just invite less people. If it's messy, that's okay. Throw a blanket over it. Right? I mean, but, but be with one another consistently. And a, a really a, a more accurate and, and closer application of this passage is open up your home so that others who have a need can stay there. Other believers. Now, I understand there needs to be wisdom in this. You know, you, you may, if you don't know the person, the situation, the background, especially if you have children in the home, I, I understand that. And that's something you need to, to make sure and take care of. But this is an area I think we as a body have an opportunity to grow in. I, I've seen several times where the call has gone out for a place for someone needing a room for either a few days, a few weeks, and sometimes no response at all from our body on that. We need to work at that. We need to work at that. Opportunity to grow. It's important to note the word practicing here. That word is the idea of pursuing. Pursue. What he's saying here is pursue hospitality. Look for ways. Don't just wait for it to come on you. Be opportunistic. 
Call Ruth up in the church office and just let her know, hey, I've got a room or I'd be happy if someone needs a place to stay for a few days or a week. Give me a call, let me know. Or let uh, Sean Cullen and the missions team know about if you're willing or desire to host a missionary in their family for any length of time. Let them know you're open to that so they can keep a list and contact you. That's a wonderful, that's practicing hospitality, exactly. Open up your home to missionaries. All right, verse 13 says, Love without hypocrisy actively looks for ways to provide for the needs of fellow believers. The sixth characteristic in verse 14 is that genuine love is also forgiving. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. That sounds a lot like uh, what Jesus said in Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Or Matthew 5, 44, where he says, pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't use the exact same phrase here, though. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. And persecution often brings to mind this idea of someone being oppressed for their faith. But the common use of the word, or that's the most common use of the word, but the basic idea of the word or meaning is to pursue or run after. And in a negative context, to pursue with an intent to harm. Again, here, I think Paul, he's playing off. It's the exact same word for pursue that Paul used at the end of verse 13. I think he's, the thought comes to his mind that there are those, even in the church, who will pursue you to do harm. Some may sin against you intentionally. And Paul is saying here, again, and I say that because notice verse 16, that phrase one another. We're still talking about it in the context of the church here. Paul's talking about here those in the body who, again, may seek to sin against you, but genuine love does not respond by asking God to bring disaster upon that person but actually to show them favor. The word blessed means to speak well of, to give favor or benefit to. And if someone does you harm, this is saying rather than retaliate against them, rather than speaking evil against them or being bitter or hating them or treating them harshly or or going to somebody else and saying, you know what this person did to me? Instead of all that, your desire to do good to them and for them Paul, interesting, he shifts here. This verse actually does contain imperatives, commands. And I think he does that to indicate this is a firm instruction. And it is very difficult to respond this way when you've been sinned against, right? Especially against somebody you would expect to have treated you with love. It's especially hurtful when it happens in the church. And Paul says, have an attitude, a spirit of blessing, not cursing. Genuine love is not vindictive. Or bitter or malicious. And that doesn't mean you have to totally overlook it. If it is egregious enough of a sin, or if it's happening consistently enough, then what does the Bible say we need to do? Go to that person in love, right? Let them know, Matthew 18. Talk to them about it. But remember to be forgiving. Seventh characteristic of genuine love is that it is empathetic. Here's another tough one for us unemotional types. Look in verse 15. To rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with the weeping. Sincere love is not jealous of another's blessing, nor does it stand aloof from another's pain. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when he said, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I would ask you, how, how do you respond when a brother or sister is rejoicing about something. Or, or when they've experienced a tragedy or they're very discouraged. How do you respond? 
Because Paul isn't saying here, you know what, drum up some fake emotion. Just fake it so that they are are happy about it. No, but he's recognizing that a genuine love will gravitate to how the other person's feeling. That's called empathy. Empathy and joy, empathy and sorrow. That is such an important way to show love. You remember Job, right? Remember how his friends treated him? They did sit there in silence for a few days, but then they opened their mouths and they started telling Job, Job, you know what? The cause of all this is because of your sin. You did something wrong. God's judging you. How do you think that made him feel after all that he'd gone through? (laughs) Thanks, guys. You know what he said in Job 6.14? Very insightful. He says this, For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. You know, we need to hear truth, especially in the hard times. But we need to remember we're dealing with another human being. I remember not long after my grandmother had suffered a stroke and I'd learned that I might lose my job and then we found out about Brie may not survive birth. And I remember not long after that, I was meeting with a pastor at my church and you know, as I shared with him the situation and start telling him about Brie and you know, tears were filling my eyes, you know what he said? <laughs> he said, well, well, if anybody to have this trial, I'm glad it was you because you will be such a good testimony of the sovereignty of God. You know, I, I know he meant well. I know he meant well. But that didn't help me at that moment. You know, I, I needed to know this man cared. I, I, I needed to know that he understood how much it hurt at the thought of perhaps losing a child. Perhaps losing a means of income, of perhaps losing a woman who had been to me a mother for many years of my life. And all that was crashing down at the same period of time. And all he could think about was a theological platitude. True empathy will provide you a platform to present the truth. But we're all human beings. We know this, right? It matters when we know somebody cares. Doesn't it make us more apt to listen? It It does. You know, again, having empathy doesn't mean you don't communicate biblical truth. It doesn't mean you don't take somebody to the scriptures. But just be careful about throwing out verses from an indifferent heart. And note again here how Paul indicates a sincere love will express itself in emotion. You know that word weep? You know what the word means? It means weep. It means shed real tears. It means cry. You're sitting with somebody and they just found out they have cancer and they have a family and you're sitting there with them and just pat them on the back. This is tough. You know what? Cry. That's okay. And if you struggle with this, ask the Lord to help you. Lord, help me to express empathy. You've called me to be one who is empathetic in joy and in sorrow. And I do care about this person. Help me, Lord, to express it in a way that will encourage them. One person said, true empathy is your pain in my heart. If your love is sincere, you will feel their pain. You will feel their joy. Eighth characteristic of genuine love is expressed in the four phrases Paul gives in verse 16. And though they're translated as commands, really there's only one command in the verse, do, uh, do not be wise in your own estimation. The rest, again, are participles. Again, we're here talking about characteristics And all these characteristics in verse 16 center on one attitude, one attribute, and that is the attitude of humility. 
humility. Be of the same mind literally means be thinking the same thing toward one another. That is to live in agreement, to be in harmony, to be unified. And what is it that will undermine unity more than anything else in the church? Pride, right? I did that because the very next thing Paul says, don't be mindful of high things. And what he meant by that is don't, don't concentrate on things that will elevate yourself or, or give unto, undue attention to those in high positions so that you can be you know, with the in people. Instead, he says, associate with or join the company of the lowly, the humble. Again, here we're reminded that love without hypocrisy shows no partiality. It does not, is not motivated by what you will get out of it from someone else. Sincere love doesn't spend time with only those like you. And as I look around this room, I see lots of differences. I see a lot of differences. I see different ages. I see different genders. I see different colors of skin, different sizes and shapes, different hair colors, eye colors, different backgrounds. I see those who grew up in Christian homes, those who didn't. I see those who grew up with a mom and a dad. And those maybe that only had one parent. And I see some of you who had none growing up. I see differences in marital status. Some of you are married. Some of you are single, wishing to be married. Some of you are single, glad that you're not married. (laughs) Some of you have lost a loved one, a spouse. Some of you have gone through a painful divorce. I see some here that have lots of kids. I see some that have few and some with none. I see many here that have outgoing personalities and some, like me, that, believe it or not, are very introverted. (laughs) It's true. I see some here who love sports, very active, and I see others who love to read. I see those who can walk and I see those who can't. You know, I see differences. We all see them. You know what, beloved, I'm glad for them. I'm glad for them. This is God's family. Thankfully, we are not all the same. And let's not gravitate only to those people that we know, those people that we are comfortable with, those that look like us or act like us, those who uh, we are comfortable around, who benefit us. It's okay to have friends like you and all that. But let's reflect a love that's without hypocrisy, one that we see here in Romans 12, because we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you know and love Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, turned from your sin and faith, placed your trust in Jesus Christ as the only means of forgiveness, the only one who can carry your sin, the guilt of your sin, and keep you from being punished in hell for eternity. If you believe that, if you've committed your life to that, God's spirit is within you and has put you in this family brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, again, my prayer is that this sincere love that we see here in Romans 12 be expressed among us. Amen? It's a love that is holy, a love that is affectionate, a love that shares, that is fervent, that endures, that is forgiving, that is empathetic, that is humble. And yes, that is quite a list. Quite a list of ingredients. And I'm sure that Some of them, maybe many of them, as we are talking about them, you're saying, you know, that's just not me. (laughs) That is not me. 
The idea of having a deep affection, of weeping with someone else, of expressing an enthusiastic zeal to serve. I mean, you might as well just tell me to go fly. Maybe a challenge for some of you to bless those who've brought you harm or sin against you seems impossible because of the hurt perhaps you've experienced before, the hurt that you've experienced from that situation. Maybe that you struggle with being generous or you don't have much to give or maybe the thought of spending time with certain other people in this room, well, just seems a little difficult. Maybe you're not comfortable around people. I'm sure there's something here in this list of ingredients of genuine love that you just don't see happening in your life. (laughs) Or perhaps don't even want to consider or think about pursuing them. That is just so different than how you are. But God expects it from us. And, And as we saw, He commands a fervent love from the heart. So how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we as a a body get to the place where this kind of sincere love is overflowing towards one another? Well, the first thing we need to do is remember Paul's words in the very beginning of Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. We do it by the power of the gospel (laughs) and meditating on the gospel and what God has done for you and what God has done in you. That will motivate you to live out who you are in Christ. And just reminding yourself that you can be transformed and are transformed by the power of this gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You have a new nature, don't you, if you're saved? Aren't you different? Don't you have a new nature? The Bible says you do. If you're saved, you can love without hypocrisy. If you're saved, you can love in the way described here in Romans. Because Christ has changed you. And secondly, and similarly, the gospel also reminds us that we live by God's grace. What did it take to get you saved? Your own efforts, your understanding, your ability. God's grace, right? God's activity in your heart. And in the same way, we must depend on His grace to sanctify us. And so be sure, again, that whatever God expects of you, whatever He commands you to do, God will Do that work in you if you depend on Him. Pray in faith. Ephesians 3, 16, in Paul's prayer, when he he said that his prayer was that He would grant you to be strengthened in the inner man through His Spirit. We need to be praying that prayer often. And remember, thirdly, that genuine love happens as you walk by the Spirit. You guys know Galatians 5, 22, right? Through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? That happens, that takes place as we're walking by the Spirit. So my challenge to you is, you need to understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. And then this kind of love will come out of you. This will be the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. You can do it through His power. So learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. We have a lot of resources on our website to help you with that. Sermons, as well as some classes. Fourthly, remind yourself of the relationship that all believers have with God. What does God call those who are followers of Jesus Christ? He calls them disciples. What's another term that he uses? His what? His children. What does that mean? God is Father. Believers are His children. What does that tell you? 
And they are of ultimate value, aren't they? Christ paid with his blood to purchase those children. They are worthy of being honored. They are worthy of your affection. They are worthy of your humility. They are worthy of your forgiveness, of your sharing, of your empathy. How, how do you want people, those of you with kids, how do you want people to treat your children? How do you think God wants you to treat his? Fifth consideration, we're almost done, in how to have a genuine love is, you know, don't look for the flaws in others, but look for the work that God is doing in them. This is so hard. It's easy for us to look for what's wrong, but not with what's right. Because aren't we all a work in progress? Yes, you are. I am a work in progress. That means the brother or sister next to you, in front of you, behind you, above you, below you, is also a work in progress. And God, praise Him, is patient with us. So we should be with one another. And let me add this. Don't be a fatalist. Don't buy into the idea that you can't change, that you're not built a certain way, you don't have a certain kind of personality, that that this kind of sincere love is just impossible for you. You've been too hurt in the past from a close relationship. Whatever it is, don't buy into the fact that you can't change. If you are saved, God's Spirit is in you. Is He limited in His ability to help you grow? No, He's not. He's not. Again, remember, this is a process. This is a process. I love what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, where he talked about their example, and he said that the love of each one of you toward one another is growing ever greater. You know what that tells me? They weren't there yet, but it was growing. What an encouragement. And again, ultimately, you will see this sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ when your eyes are fixed on whom? On Christ, right? The eyes fixed on Him and His example. When what you want more than anything else is what Jesus wants. When you love Him with all your heart, when you abide with Him, then the sincere love will grow in you. And that's my prayer for us, beloved, that we will be like Jesus. We love one another with the love that He has expressed towards us. And I want to close with what John said in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who is born of God and knoweth God. How's that for a memory lapse? I know the song. Love is us, love one another. Love is from God, and everyone who loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. (laughs) Music is wonderful. (laughs) Let's just work at this. I hope the tone of this message hasn't been one of condemnation. I'm not harping on things or rebuking you, but I want to encourage you to, to move towards this ideal that this is a a work that god has done in us and will continue to do in us this is a something we can achieve as a church because in the end i just want us to see glorify christ in this community and one of the primary ways he said that would happen is if we love one another so let's work at that brothers and sisters let's take opportunities we're going to have one in a second here to spend time with each other build relationships go out of your comfort zone a little bit ask god's spirit to help you do that Rather than, than seeing, I'm just going to have us close, close in prayer and, uh, and then give you a little bit of instruction, okay? Lord, we thank you for the fact, Lord, that you are love, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are good. 
that you're wise, eternal, that you are all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, that you're compassionate. Father, I would ask, please, give us just a little bit better glimpse. Peel the curtain back a little more, God, as to who you are, so we would see more of your glory, just as Moses desired to see. And Lord, I know in that, as we look to the Son, as we look to his example, what he has done for us, that we will be motivated to pursue the kind of love that you've described here through your servant, Paul. I pray for Calvary Bible Church, Lord, that you would move in us to be lovers of one another. And I know that will happen, Lord, as we love you. Father, I know there's much conflict uh, or sin and things that have happened, either happening now or in the past amongst us, Lord. Forgive us for these things and work in us, Lord, a humility so that we would Go to those we've sinned against, ask forgiveness, so that we would go to those who sinned against us and, and plead with them for reconciliation. Lord, that we'd be patient with one another. Lord, that we would help each other in this battle rather than attack. Father, I look forward to see what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.